Welcome to the College Version 2 Podcast. And now your hosts, Ross Markle and Andrea Pope. Are you ready? We're live. <laughs> We're live. We're here. We're doing it. Welcome, I guess, to uh, the College Version 2 Podcast. Uh, I'm Ross Markle, along with my friend and colleague, Andrea Pope, and uh, we're very excited to be here. It's our first episode. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You know, when you first proposed the idea of a podcast, and especially me being a co-host, I will not lie, I was a bit nervous. Um, <laughs> you know, you have a wealth of knowledge and experience in student success. And meanwhile, you know, for me, I do have a background in higher education, student affairs, and in student learning uh, assessment. And there's a lot of overlap between those areas and student success, but there's also a lot that I do not know about this area. Um, and so uh, what really helped me to become more excited right now, I'm super excited for the podcast because I realized it's going to be a chance for me to pick your brain once a month about the topics in student success that are the most pressing and the most interesting. So I'm really excited that our listeners are going to be able to learn alongside me over the next uh few episodes. So I'm I'm ready. Let's do it. Yeah. So I think, you know, as you're mentioning that, it's pro- like the goal of what we want to do here, why we're calling it college version two is, and I write and talk about this a lot, that we know from theory, from philosophy, and most importantly from data, like the way that our colleges are built now is not super conducive to student success. Mm-hmm. And so you know, kind of piecemeal throughout all the topics we're going to talk about, you know, over the course of this year and hopefully moving forward is about saying, like, how do these help us understand fundamental challenges we face just by the nature of the construction of colleges and universities? But more importantly, kind of how do they help us patch and fix those things so that we can just build a better system that's more naturally conducive to student success? Um, And so today we're going to start off with sense of belonging, which is a, a huge hot button topic. You know, um, it's been going on a lot and I think been emphasized more and more by the pandemic. Um, there was a really good article that came out in early uh, February 2023 by Adrian Liu in the Chronicle of Higher Ed talking about everyone seems to be talking about sense of belonging. And they interviewed some of our friends like uh, Terrell Strayhorn, Jillian uh, Kinsey. They talked to folks that were working on sense of belonging. But we, at, at, in our work, have our own approach at Sense of Belonging and, and in accordance with kind of what we do organizationally, you know, we start with a really thorough theoretical understanding and we move that into measurement, then we get some data and then we talk about what schools can do with that information. And so I wanted to have a chance for us to sit down in our first episode and talk about Sense of Belonging from the way that we look at it, knowing all the things we know from the different perspectives we take, including theoretical, empirical, and, and practical. Um, and so I guess, Andre, my like, question to you as we talk about sense of belonging is, in your work in student affairs and other things, like, what's your read or, or where does sense of belonging fit in your experience kind of across higher education? Um, so, you know, I've, I've worked in uh, residence life. I've I've worked in career and academic advising. Uh, I've worked a bit in a, the Center for Multicultural Student Services at James Madison. Uh, and for me, I would say sense of belonging was something that was talked a lot about when I was in my in graduate school, taking my graduate courses um, from a, a theoretical perspective. But by the time I really got on the ground. Um, 
it was something that there wasn't a lot of practical guidance out there about it. I didn't necessarily have information about my students to figure out who is, um, you know, who might be struggling with sense of belonging. Uh, I think some of my colleagues probably in orientation had a, a maybe a, a stronger focus on that. But for me, I felt like I was in a great role to be able to influence that. And of course, uh, there was a lot of general, a general sentiment of we want our students to, to feel like um, a part of the community. And so we would have, for example, in residence life, you would have different types of events um, within in the residence halls for students, but there wasn't necessarily an overarching framework of like, here's sense of belonging, here's what we're aiming for, here's how we're going to, to measure how well we're doing and achieving that with our students. Uh, we might have a, a campus climate survey that would come out every once in a while, uh, and we might have a, a, a one hour meeting about that as a, as a, um, a department, but there wasn't a, necessarily a lot of follow through and um, uh, really a, a clear vision for that, at least in my experience. I think that's such a perfect way to put it because, you know, it seems to me like sense of belonging has reached that level of like engagement, right? Like it's one of those things where, yeah, we have a campus-wide initiative and we all are talking about how important it is. And there's this kind of push at an institutional level. And, and But even within institutions and particularly across institutions, what does that mean, right? Like we're all kind of left to think about what that looks like in our own work. And, you know, I think for us, you know, anytime we're talking about giving data to a school about anything, it's really, we have to say, like, what is it that we're talking about? And, and I can remember, you know, my very first experience out of grad school working in student affairs assessment, like, first talking to people who were running orientation programs and Greek life and all that other stuff and saying, like, okay, well, we want to talk about, and you could pick it, civic engagement or sociocultural diversity. And people would say, like, well, how do we measure that as an assessment person? And I would say, well, you have to tell me what it is, right? Like, tell me in your program how you want to impact that, and then we can define it. And then once we can define it, we can measure it. And that measurement in that definition might not be all things to all people, but it, once you have that definition, you can say, here's what it means for us, right? And it's like civic engagement, right? If civic engagement for you is recycling, voting, and volunteering, that's great. Like that's and, and yes, you can't say anything about well, they're you know involved in the legislative process. Well, okay, but that's not what we said civic engagement was. So I think having that definition is really important. And it's it's the assessment nerds in us that are popping out and saying, well, you have to have an operational definition before. But it's important because if you don't have that, then we're all feeling different pieces of the elephant, and nobody's really you, you know we're not working in consensus. And to take more of, I think, the negative side, it's almost like one of those accreditation exercises where at the end you say what you should have been working on the whole time. And then everybody's job is to like say, well, try to craft what they've been doing into a way that, that it aligns with, with that. And instead, what we say is, here's what sense of belonging is, and here's how we're going to work on it. And then, yeah, that might be limited, but at least we were intentional in the impact we were. You know, I'm glad we're kind of talking about defining sense of belonging right now, because 
in preparation for this podcast, I did a bit of research into sense of belonging. And what really stood out to me is that, yeah, even when we're all using the same term, sense of belonging or belonging, it seems like we're often talking about slightly or sometimes even majorly different things. Um, you know, like I read about things like some people talk about mattering. Do students feel like they're seen and they matter? Some people talk about like attachment. And then from there, you can ask like attachment to what? The university, to individuals within the university. Um, I also read something that was interesting that talked about um, belonging in different contexts. So like maybe you feel like you belong socially, but not academically. But it just seems like such a multifaceted construct. And so I'm I'm wondering, like, how do you make sense of everything that's out there when you're defining it? What is what are the most salient features for you? So there are three things, and you know, we talk about all different kinds of non-cognitive skills in the work that we do. And, and I think sense of belonging is, is the perfect place to begin for us because at the core, and I just had this realization kind of recently, to me, the biggest thing about belonging is that it represents the acknowledgement of the social aspect of student success. So, you know, everybody that talks about retention talks about Vincent Tinto. And, and for a long time, especially when I was first getting into research in this area, I'm like, look, I get it. Like, we've been talking about Tinto for 50 years. Like, okay, what, you know, let's move on. But then, I mean, within the last like year, I kind of came to the realization that what the real value of Vincent Tinto's work was, was teaching us that retention is a social process. And that it's not like, you know, there's always these horror stories about, you know, freshman surveys of look to your left, look to your right, one of you is going to be gone. And there was a time in higher education where attrition was a point of pride and viewed as necessary. Like, well, if everybody passes, then this doesn't mean anything. And that's because we kind of viewed retention and success as an academic process. Those that were smart enough to make it would make it. And those that weren't didn't deserve to get there. And what Tinto said was like, that's not it at all. It's a social process. And you really come into this kind of culture of a university or a college and say, okay, do I fit in here? Can I make it? And yes, you're right. Academically, socially, there's different elements to that. But ultimately, attrition is not a, you know, kind of Navy SEAL ring the bell three times. You weren't meant to be here. It was really, you know what? I'm not fitting in. This isn't for me. These people don't look like me. I'm not resonating with this academically, whatever the instance might be. And then once that, that realization happened, then you left, right? And that's what we didn't understand. And so I think first off, you have to acknowledge why you're talking about that in the grander scheme of understanding students. But yeah. then the second part that I think is really, uh, I think probably the second revelation in that social realization is not just does it matter, but the problem, and I think the major limitation of, of Tinto's work is that he was at the University of Syracuse in the 70s. You know, you're in a you know, rural New York campus. How do you know who feels like they belong? Well, you tend to drift towards those understandings of institutional commitment. I think Syracuse is a great school. Like I'm wearing the colors, all of those sorts of things. And that for a long time, especially in kind of admissions views of enrollment management, I feel like that was the, the default social understanding was like, we want kids to bleed the color of our school. Mm -hmm. And then here's the last little bit I'm going to say about it. It's kind of like a twofold major change of the last, I would say, 20 years. One, community colleges, because 
students don't go to community colleges for the same reason. So you're not likely to bleed the colors or seek the college experience. You're at a community college because, and for the, for the most part, I want to transfer, right? I'm here to get my requisite classes so I can go on to the next place. And in that case, your institutional commitment is probably not to the community college, but to the transfer institution. And two, you're there for employment, in which case I don't care about the school. I care about the, the certificate, the degree, whatever it is that's going to give me a better job. So community colleges shed one light on that. The other thing is our increased understanding of underserved populations. And in doing that, we began to see that it wasn't about loving the school and being committed to the school. It was really about, do I feel welcome here? Do I feel like I'm connected to people in ways that matter? And, and we'll get into some of that in a little bit more of the definitional stuff. But I feel like as we sought to understand a lot of traditionally underserved populations, we understood that social component, not that organizational component of wanting to, you know, uh, bleed the colors, as I always say. I think that's kind of the old school way of thinking about it. And that has a role for a lot of schools. But the real thing about sense of longing and, and all the different things you talked about was it saying it's about the people. Right, because if I love the people and I feel supported and connected, I'm likely to graduate from this school, no matter what school it is. Right, like whether it's this community college or that community college, or you know, University of Kentucky versus the University of Tennessee, the people inside are just as important. And what I always say to, to folks on campuses is, think about your own work. Right, like I'll pick whatever school they are and compare them to their heated rival, and be like, if I picked you up and moved your whole team to another, to that school, how would you feel about that? And if they say, no, I'd still love it. Okay, that's because you're connected to the people, not the organization. And I think that's that's really the first thing we have to understand. And then the other things fall down as just ways of articulating those social connections. Once you know it's the people and that kind of integration into that social culture, mattering, entitled, well, not entitled, um, engagement, you know, um, all those other things, attachment, yeah. Those things start to articulate those things. So I think that's the, the big key realization in the definitional aspect of is understanding what do we mean in terms of the connection to the people. I feel like that's a great way of kind of taking a lot of literature that at at first glance it can seem overwhelming and like there's so many different ways to think about it, but they're all underneath the same umbrella of it's about the people and connection to the people within a university. Something else that you said that really resonated with me, and I I, um, I just wanted to call it out again, is this idea that, um, you know, student retention, that it is, a, that as institutions, the environment that we create has a major impact on that. Um, something that was in the Chronicle, I think it was in that Chronicle article that you mentioned, but it may have been somewhere else, was kind of just this idea of, you know, if we can look at two institutions that have the same population of students who have the same kind of background, um, achievement, ability, and all these types of things, but they're graduating at much higher rates at one institution versus the other, then we have to ask the question of what is actually going on within the university that's impacting, um, you know, students' success and their retention. And so, um, I, I, I love that we're, we're shifting our focus to A, what can institutions do? And then also within that understanding that institutional commitment is important in some ways, but when we talk about sense of belonging, it's much more about the people within the institution and those connections. Exactly. And, and there's another point that was brought up in that Chronicle article where it talks about 
um, and this is another term that's just creeping up and spreading in ways that I'm not comfortable with, but that sense of belonging is one of the ways we've shifted away from kind of a student-focused deficit mindset, right? So when you talk with faculty about student success, oftentimes it's very much, well, they're not ready to succeed in my course. They don't show up. They don't get things done. They're not motivated, right? It's that very academic classroom-based view of success, which is if these students only showed up more prepared to succeed, our lives would be a lot easier. And what sense of belonging, what I love about it is, yes, we acknowledge that sometimes students come in and they feel you know, disengaged or, or outsiders or whatever it might be from that kind of social system. And, and in that case, we might be thinking of, well, how do we intervene to change that student's mind? But in many cases, it's, it's as much or more a focus of what are we doing as institutions? Because you know, you, it's like I would say with like self-efficacy and student confidence. You know, if I saw you were a student that wasn't a confident learner, I wouldn't sit down and be like, okay, Andrea, we need to change this about you. You need to work on your confidence. If you're no, I'd say, like, okay, how do I build a structure that that fosters confidence? And I may or may not ever mention to you that I'm trying to build that. Sense of belonging is a little different because you can articulate and say, I just had a flashback to Pitch Perfect, uh, which is top five favorite movie of all time. But you know, uh, um, Anna Kendrick's character doesn't want to go to college. She comes in, her dad's a professor on campus, and he said she wants to go to LA and be a music producer. And he says, if you join one activity and really put in an effort, then, and you don't like college, I'll let you go to LA. I'll pay for it. I don't care. And that was like the deficit mindset approach of well, you're not getting engaged and you need to understand that it's important. And I do think that that message can exist, but at the same time, it's not like, and now go off and do that. Like you would with study skills, right? You'd be like, here's your organizational tools. Here's your calendar. Here's your checklist. Now you go figure out how to make that work. Sense of belonging and social connections are more like, okay, yes, you need to be engaged, but we also need to make sure that we're not having messaging, culture, policy that's, that's exclusionary and is making you feel more outside, more excluded, more kind of alienated from, from that social network. And I feel like that probably is even more important when we're talking about like underserved student populations to have that kind of lens when we're thinking about sense of belonging. This episode is brought to you by the League for Innovation in the Community College. The League's 2024 Innovations Conference will be held March 17th to 20th in Anaheim, California. The call for proposals is open until October 13th, so submit your session now. Find out more at www.league.org. Thanks also to our sponsor, DIA Higher Education Collaborators. Want to understand your student's sense of belonging? Want to use vital student data to predict success? How about train your faculty and staff to better integrate a growth mindset into their work with students? DIA's Isaac platform can help you do all this and more. Find out more at www.isaac.net. That's I-S-S-A-Q.net. Now, back to the show. Right, and, and you bring up, there's a really uh, good article, and I want to, hold on, we need to take a time out because 
this is like a fundamental issue of the podcast that I'm absolutely going to like hammer home and people can take faith in. I have really come to hate on social media when people are like, there was a study done. Someone told me, right? Like this ethereal, there is an, a resource that exists, but I'm not going to give it to you. Um, what I hate that because A, you could be making it up or B, I might be misinterpreting it or C, even worse, I'm just plagiarizing, right? Because if I say, you know, somebody did a study, now you're going to attribute that to me. And I don't want, I, in our world, I don't want you to rest on my expertise. I want you to be able to look at what somebody else did. Um, and the study that was done was done by um, Spanerman, a couple of other folks. It was a split between um, University of Illinois and McGill University. And they were studying the effects of uh, living learning communities at the University of Illinois. And what they found was they looked at this, um, they, they talked about a couple different ones, but the one they focused on was women in STEM, the living learning community for women in STEM. And they looked at sense of belonging as we talk about it and institutional commitment as we talk about it, you know, that what's your attitude towards the people, what's your attitudes towards the institution as a whole. And they found that after participating in this living learning community, these female STEM majors increased in the social connection. So they felt more like, yes, I have this community of women in STEM. I now see like there are people like me and I have a mechanism to engage. But what was interesting was their institutional commitment decreased because mm -hmm. in realizing how like they were these other people, they also realized how unlike they were the rest of campus. And so the, the one knock on that study, I was like, I wish they would have followed them through to see how that played out in terms of you know, retention and, and success. But I still think understanding the kind of dichotomy and the individuality and sometimes even um, you know, zero sum game of those two feelings um, it is a really important way for us to understand what this is, how it relates to things, and how we can kind of build culture. And as you said, especially among underserved populations, because without that connection, if you look at this through a, a, a lens of sense of longing, it's really transparent. Like, it's really clear to see if you, if you believe in the value of sense of longing and you pick veteran students, single parents, whatever the underserved population is, the moment they come onto a campus and they say, I'm not like anybody here, I don't belong in this group, the, the choice to leave seems so easy at that point. And yeah. so I think you're right. When we understand that among those populations and through the lens of those populations, it doesn't have to be you're just like every student here, but it does have to be I feel a connection to certain points in this social network. Yeah. And I feel like the, the, the when we are, uh, I think that's something that has become a, a value of higher education. And I, I love this is kind of that we want to diversify. Um, we want to have more students of different backgrounds that are on our campuses. Uh, but what comes along with that is uh, creating environments that are welcoming and are non-exclusive to those groups. And, uh, you know, you I feel like especially with those underserved populations, there is more weight on the institution to do that work um, because they will come in feeling like I am not, maybe I'm not here, or maybe I don't belong here and may not have the tools to integrate themselves the same way that um, maybe some of our more traditional students might. No, and, and you bring up a really good point. It's, and you know, go back to the point of this podcast, which is like, how do we understand how we're built and, and how that is not conducive? 
And we very much have always had this historical kind of open door policy, right? Like you mentioned working in multicultural centers, right? Like we'll have a place where, where students of color or whatever, again, pick, pick your population where they can go. And it's like, we built this resource for you to connect with and to foster that sense of belonging, but it's usually up to them to find it. It's okay. usually, you know, it's, it's a reactive resource, not a proactive resource instead of figuring out on that in onboarding and in those early orientation experiences. And I don't just mean, you know, orientate, I mean, small o orientation, that whole process of integrating into higher ed, how are we making sure those connections are made? How is that a natural part of that process? Because yeah, we might say at orientation, here's the center, you know, here's where it's located. The, the process of making that social connection is, is exempt from that. And so, um, I think that's that probably good a time as any to transition into and talk about interventions, because I do think this is the magical question, right? Like, um, and we're certainly going to give you some resources on how to define sense of belonging. And, and we can talk maybe in a little bit about how we measure it, how we assess it. Um, and I think through the interventions, you really have to articulate what it is um, to, to talk about how interventions work. But um, I think that's probably a good place to start is, you know, Andre, you've been in reading up on this kind of what's your take on what's going on in the field in terms of intervention. Uh, and it doesn't have to be excellent, but we'll see what we got. Yeah. Yeah. And I meant the, the interventions, not your review of it. <laughs> well, um, I want to preface this by saying that I've only just begun to skim the surface of the literature out there on sense of belonging. Um, but to me, it seems like there's a lot of research out there about defining sense of belonging, measuring sense of belonging, identifying which student groups are high or low in terms of sense of belonging. Um, and, you know, especially I think more recently about looking at the relationship between sense of belonging and various student success outcomes. But to me, it seems like there's a lot less out there about how to effectively impact sense of belonging. Um, and, you know, I, I, of course, I came across a, a few different kind of interventions that were maybe some of them are more focused on uh, faculty and how do you build connection between faculty and students, or some that are more focused in like student life and how do you create, um, how do you plug students into different groups, social groups, peer connections, and those types of things. And even some kind of institution level interventions that are more direct and tailored that might, it might only just be a 30 minute intervention, but it's been seen to have, you know, significant impacts. But I, um, it, it just seems like there's not as much out there. So I really, uh, my question for you was actually going to be, what do you, what do we know about how to impact sense of belonging? Can we kind of like categorize the interventions that are, are known to work? Yeah. So I, the way I break it down is kind of threefold. Um, one is uh, what I would call sort of direct intervention, which is we have a program in place to improve student sense of belonging. And I think that um, you mentioned uh, PERTS, you didn't mention it by name, but PERTS, post-secondary education research that scales. They have a like 30-minute online belonging activity that institutions can adopt for free. Um, I've connected lots of schools with PERTS. I, you know, I, I will say what I've heard in the feedback is, you know, PERTS has a particular way of addressing sense of belonging. And it goes, again, the definition is key here. But Hertz really focuses on, and this is David Yeager's work, uh, on the uncertainty of belonging, 
that that they really identified that it's really about students coming in and and being nervous about making the connection. And so Pertz really says, hey, it kind of an it gets better approach. They normalize it. They say lots of students feel like they don't belong. That's normal. That's okay. Here's what you can do. And that again, this is the key of the underlying theory. And I think that a that removes a lot of what we know, right? So. I'll take a brief definitional tangent. So one of the theories you mentioned was mattering, right? So mattering is one of the ways we commonly operationalize or, or define our interventions. And so what mattering says is you feel like you matter to people in three different ways. One is awareness, which is people know I'm here, right? They, hey, Andrea, I see you, you're a person, you're, I'm aware of you. Uh, two is importance which is, Andrea, how are you doing? What are what's going on in your life? Oh, this person, I'm of importance to them. They put in effort, they care about me. And the third is reliance. And that, that is basically, I am necessary for this social network to continue. So I have to feel a connection because if I'm not here, it's not gonna continue to function. Those are the three ways we kind of embody that matter. And, and again, citation included in the list below, don't worry about that. But the point is, when, when I talk with folks about how you want to impact sense of belonging, those are ways that I frame our interventions, that you need to be thinking about driving one of those three perceptions. And that's where I think Pertz misses it. The other thing that's come up, and we've talked to some of our institutional partners who've tried to adopt that Pertz intervention, is that it goes back to underserved populations. Don't just tell me as the only Black student in a predominantly white institution that it gets better. What, what our partners have told us, and, and there's, um, you know, sort of a, a, a individual mindset approach, which is you can't just say everyone goes through this because it doesn't acknowledge who I am as an individual. And if you take that out, you can't tell me how to feel like I belong because I'm not going to belong in the same way that everybody else is. Yeah. So that, that definition is really key to driving what intervention you want to have. And, and so I'm glad we got the definitional point in there somewhere. But to your point about how we classify interventions, direct intervention is one, which is either the Pertz thing or join a club or access this, or even here's a peer mentor, right? Things that are specific interventions. My qualm with that is it's like trying to eat the healthy option at McDonald's. Like, you, you have a system that is not built for sense of belonging. And so you try to throw this patch on so that students who fall through the cracks can get you know, back connected. And my point is, well, why don't you just build a system where they were connected from the onset, right? So you know, structurally, one of those things I point to is like, everyone should have a dedicated either advisor, coach, mentor, whatever you want to call it. If you don't have in your institutional setup a means by which I have a built-in social connection, what do we do, right? Like, and, and if they're not required to meet, you know, you that's where you're prioritizing and systematizing sense of belonging by having those, everybody gets it. And, and yeah, you can do better things, you know, like matching people when you have a mentor or coaching relationship on, on things that are important to them. But that's kind of a, a better, I think, systematic way. The other two things, I would say um, we've started to do more and more work on faculty training, um, thinking about how you can do this in the classroom. And, and really, it, it, that is more about, you know, I mentioned earlier, the individual versus the aggregate stuff. What are we trying to change in students versus what are we trying to change about us? 
And when we train faculty, it's never like, here's something to talk about in your classroom that will foster a sense of belonging. It's here's how to work with students. Um, I always tell the story, Marty Fox taught my bio intro class my first week of undergraduate college, mumble teen years ago. <laughs> Marty Fox did one of those weird things where he went to every student and like got like a foot away from your face and said your name three times. But he remembered everyone's name in our class, never forgot it, could call anybody out by classroom of 50. He probably had 300 students that semester, but he remembered everybody's name and would call us out by name. Now, that's the baseline awareness. But Marty Fox was doing things in his classroom that you know, arguably didn't take up any curricular time, but fostered that belonging. And so then the third thing I would say is getting back to leaving the McDonald's, right? How do we culturally change what we're doing? How do we prioritize sense of belonging? And that includes, you know, mandatory advising, focusing on that as a part of orientation, you know, just those making the whole organization aware that this is a priority and, and where do we find ways in our everyday actions, not dedicated specific targeted interventions, but in the ways that we operate to foster sense of belonging. So that's where I think, again, making those connections through advising, coaching, counseling, whatever resource you, you have or, or can exercise, but they have to be universal. They have to be mandatory. They have to be persistent, right? Not just let's meet once and then see you next year. That's where you're starting to match your action to the outcome. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work with kind of like theory-based, logic-based interventions, right? Yeah. So it's to say, you know, you can't just say we wanna do sense of belonging throw four or five things at it and then hope that, that your scores get better. You have to systematically think about what are those connections? And maybe I, you probably could articulate better where a more logic or theory-based approach to, to student intervention fits in here from the kind of cultural change perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that well, first off, I want to say that listening to you talk about some of these, thing, these things, I'm reflecting on my my own undergrad experience, which um, I feel like I just graduated, but it's been about a decade now. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, so many of these things that you're talking about would be so helpful, and especially like it being incorporated into the fabric. I think that there were a lot of kind of dedicated places for me to go to seek out connection, but it it, it was challenging to to have the the motivation and the, to 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 seek those out for myself to have to have been able to have a more connected relationship with my advisors and my faculty members. I think would have made a world of difference for me. Um, of course, I got through, but I think it could have been such um, just a much better experience for me. Um, but you know, listening to you kind of talk about that more theoretical um, perspective or that, that theory informs, sometimes I call it, we will call it like program theory or um, having a logic model to kind of start by asking this question of, you know, what is our, what is our outcome? What are we trying to achieve? And then working backwards from there to say, um, not only what are we going to do to get there, but why do we believe that that should work to impact student outcomes? And um, why do we believe that that's going to work to increase sense of belonging? And that really requires you 
you to kind of deconstruct your interventions and to really think about where where are the levers for change? How do I know that those are levers for change? How am I going to impact? Um, how am I going to push those levers? How am I going to know if pushing those levers has succeeded? I think something that came up or something I was thinking about when you were talking about like, you know, that single black student on a predominantly white campus um, or any underserved student population. And we're thinking about how to impact sense of belonging. Um, there may be some interventions that will work for some students and not work for others, that um, the way that you might approach um, impacting sense of belonging for your more traditional college student might not work for your underserved student population. And so it's like, uh, I think one of the one of the beauties of having this kind of this logic model that lays out what is the goal, how are we going to get there, and why do we think it's going to work, is that you can start to ask these questions of, do I think that this... Um, do I think that this theory of change is going to work for all students or is it really um, are some of the mechanisms that I'm assuming are going to be in play to help this intervention be effective? Do those mechanisms only um, apply for certain student groups and not for others? Uh, and then I think that's where measurement comes in and becomes super important is because you want to have this theory for change. You want to, to have it really be based in and um, the research and what we um, believe is effective, the information that we currently have. And at the same time, we want to be um, uh, collecting information from our students, collecting data to be able to verify are the things that we expect to happen, that are the things that we hypothesize are going to impact sense of belonging, are they actually doing those things? And if not, where is the breakdown occurring? Um, and so that's for me, as I'm thinking about interventions for sense of belonging, and especially um, the ones that the non-McDonald's approach, the ones that are really baked into the fabric of our institution, it's, it's being really clear about what's that theory for change? And then how are we going to, to check on that along the way and make sure that things are happening the way that we expect them to? And, and can you just maybe talk from your experience about that, the difficulty of that conversation? Because, you know, you and I probably in two weeks of prepping for this podcast know more about sense of belonging theory than 95% of practitioners in higher ed. But how challenging is it when you sit down to someone who says like, I run a program on X and you have to say, define X for me. And, and they, they are, I imagine there's a lot of times where they're kind of befuddled and they feel a little demoralized, but it's that kind of understanding that's necessary to drive change. Right. Well, and you know, it's, it's, what's interesting about it is that um, a lot of the student affairs, I, I worked a lot with student affairs professionals. Um, and some something that is always readily apparent is that they want to help their students and they want to do the best they can for their students. And a lot of times what that means for them is, I want to do something now. I want to, to, to you know, I have this idea for a, a program or intervention, and I want to go ahead and put it into play now. And when I come in and I say, well, Let's take a step back and let's first define what it what is the outcome? How do if we're trying to improve sense of belonging, what is sense of belonging? And asking these questions about, okay, and how do we, what do we know um, impacts sense of belonging? Um, if there are different aspects of sense of belonging, which ones are we focusing on? And all these different types of questions that can a lot of times what it means is that we're it's it's going to take us longer to build something. Um, I uh, did some work with um uh 
one of my colleagues, Aaron Baer and Dr. Sarah Finney at James Madison University. And we were working with an academic success program and trying to articulate what our outcomes were for that and really trying to think about how to impact those outcomes. And we spent an entire um, semester, almost a year, really just trying to understand the, the, the theory and how we were going to impact those things. Um, and for a lot of the, the, the um, professionals that I talked to, they, they don't know where to find that time to do that. You know, that was my dedicated job. We had dedicated time. We had research assistants that were helping us. But when you have a, a ton on your plate, it can be really hard to, 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 to justify or to feel like you have the time to carve out for that kind of thinking. But what I'll say is that um, what I would always try to say to folks is like, yes, you're front loading. You're putting a lot of time into this on the front end. But what the hope is, is that that means that we're going to get it right the first time or maybe not the first time, but the second time instead of doing something, doing it for a year, finally realizing it's not working, not understanding why it's not working because we didn't really have a clear model or theory for how it was supposed to work in the first place. And now we have to start from scratch and try something again. And so at the, at the end of the day, it's like, where, where do we want to put that time on the front end or on the back end having to redo things because they're not working the way that we have hoped that they would? I, I remember starting uh, like one of my first jobs at ETS when I was in research and development and Randy Bennett used to tell us, I'll spare you my impersonation of Randy Bennett, but uh, he used to say, um, experts plan twice as long as they do, novices do yes. twice as long as they plan. Exactly. And I think the challenge, it, you're right, we, we have, you know, we're always resource constrained, time constrained, and the rush to get something done is, it's totally compelling, and I get it, but at the same time, there's nothing worse than when you're two months into the semester and you realize, like, oh, shoot, we forgot this, right? Like, and you realize we're not going to have a chance to fix that cycle for another six, eight months, right? And, and essentially... You know, you think um, this, I think there's a good transition into assessment data, that sort of thing. But when you're taking that programmatic view, yeah, you're going to get better your next try. But those students you're working with now, that's it, right? Like, so I, used, I did this project one time where we were looking at one of our orientation programs. And we found that students who enrolled really late, that they only had a 4% graduation rate. Hmm. And... This was not at JMU. I feel obliged to say that, but different program, different university. And what we, what I said was like, look, so when you're giving this orientation to a group of 20 students tomorrow, you can look at that group and say only one of them is going to graduate. And I think when you think about it that way, and, and especially I, this is one of the things I love about working in the retention space is like, it really means yes or no, make it or break it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that when you can think about we need to build this right up front. We need to have a thorough understanding. We need data to help us inform all that. Um, I think that's that's really powerful. And it's challenging, like you said, because oftentimes we come and we realize how little we know. And I think that if that's where I love an assessment mindset of like, we don't have to get it right this time. We just got to understand what we're doing and see how well we're doing. And then next year, we can really focus on making sure we're doing it as best we can. Um, I think that's really important. So. That transitions well into um, the assessment part. And I know that's not everybody's favorite topic. It's certainly you and I's favorite topic.
But um, I, I think the main thing I want to say about assessment is you, you know, a lot of stuff you've talked about, and I've alluded to engagement at the, at the onset. It's this institutional approach. Let's send out a survey. Let's see if our students feel like they belong. Yes, we might disaggregate results according to certain populations, and we might say, oh, first-gen students don't feel like they belong as much, so we need to work on that. That's a certainly like a certain popular and almost viable approach if you're really committed to it. But that's a really different focus of assessment use than what we do with our data, which you can do with our data. But the bigger point is, how do I identify who feels like they don't belong and target my work and interventions on those students? And I think sense of belonging is, again, an excellent place to make this point because I'll backtrack a little bit. We were working with a school, one of our longtime partners, and uh, last summer when we did their, their orientation, uh, their Isaac survey for orientation, we saw students, it was like the fourth or fifth semester in a row, super low in sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And when I went to do faculty training, they said, well, you're assessing them early on, like we haven't had a chance to intervene yet. And I said, look, if we don't intervene, if we don't get these students feeling like they belong, they're going to leave. Like, yeah, you might do an assessment in the spring and see like, look, all of our students feel like they belong. Well, that's because all the students who didn't left after Christmas. And so that thought about like, are we trying to take a snapshot and get a big broad picture? Or are we trying to like diagnostically assess individual students to see what type of support they need? You know, whether that's individually focused or us changing our mechanisms to support them, whichever one you're talking about, that's where I think when you're talking about assessment, regardless of what your theoretical definition or localized understanding, whatever, that's where you have to say, what are we going to use the data for? And is it going to yield the impact? And I think what your, your point about program theory and what are our outcomes? What are we doing? How are we getting there? That really sets you up to think about how assessment's going to serve you. But I know, you know, we just had a conversation um, with, with, with folks the other day who were saying, yeah, a lot of schools are talking about focusing on sense of belonging. And my question was like, how? Like, are they going to do it like Nessie? Like, okay, we know this. Or are they really going to try to focus on supporting students by using some sort of diagnostic intervention? And that doesn't even talk about evaluation, looking at like gains and things. I mean, really, it's just talking about what's your immediate interpretation and use of the data. And that gets away from even saying, how do we understand whether or not it's gotten better? Yeah. I feel like that timing piece is, is, is really interesting. And I like that you made the connection to program theory because, yeah, my thought is, um, you know, if, if, you, if you are having a clear articulation of how you expect sense of belonging to evolve over a student's first year and what are the interventions or the levers that you're going to be um that you're going to be um that are possible during that time then that gives you would automatically know that assessing a student on sense of belonging in the the spring semester is probably way too late um you would know that you know the 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 window for that that intervention is probably much earlier on which means that you're going to need to have information earlier on which means that you're also going to have to have touch points earlier on um and yeah so uh i am glad that we're talking about that well and it's a good point because we always get this question of like 
So we have some schools that want to want to do assessment and get a lot of data on these non cognitive skills, like during the summer as part of orientation or onboarding. We have other schools that say we want to wait till they've been here a couple of weeks. And because they'll say, you know, like, we have questions about, like, how students feel about faculty and staff and people say, well, they haven't met any faculty and staff. How do we know? Like, that's not, and I say, it doesn't matter whether that's actually based on reality, because if I walk in saying, I don't think anybody here is like me, that that's important to know right away. Right? Like, that's important to know, no matter whether that's based on truth, because if they, if I feel like that, that's going to shape all of the other things I do. That's going to shape my decisions about uh, persistence. That's going to shape whether I go to tutoring. That's going to shape whether I engage in class discussions. And so it, it's, we always talk about these things like this, like, oh, sense of belonging. And, you know, later on, it'll be growth mindset or whatever. But we don't, we don't often talk about how intertwined they are in that sense of belonging is a product of and a predictor of self-efficacy and you know all of those things that that invariably they overlap and so when you're thinking about those data you're right having a good understanding of what that progression looks like when do my interventions kick in when is this really a pain point for our students those are really really important questions to answer yeah the last thing i want to talk about before we get out of here andrea is just sort of where institutions are kind of struggling with this. And um, you, you, we've, talk, we've alluded to community colleges, you know, talking about community colleges is gonna be a big part of what we do on the podcast. Um, I will tell you in the data we've looked at, our community college partners always score worse and they always tell us, well, we're not built to do that, right? And that's, that's kind of the crux of community colleges. And this is what Pathways is all about is, when you build a system that's meant to be open access, lots of ways in, that decreases structure and that structure loses opportunity to have connections. So when you have more open access, and it's, this is where I'm obliged to say, let's not get any halo um, biases here. Because you have better students academically says nothing about how connected they are socially. So your assumption that we're a community college, our students are a little less prepared academically, they're a little more all over the place, that by no means tells us that they have to be less socially connected. But I think the other big challenge is the pandemic and, and community colleges probably felt that a little harder, but you know, also you know, four-year institutions were saying, we don't have the same face time. And we realized how much that was a huge part of, of sense of belonging. And it was being built for certain populations of students by the just inherent nature of orientation and first year experience and all that other stuff. But when we all went virtual, the literally the social aspect was gone. It was as we're doing this now, you know, it was all virtual, and the ability to feel connection was and feel and develop connection was really hindered. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about how we how we try to think about that moving forward? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I it's I can absolutely see how you could feel very um you know helpless or not in control when we do know that personal connections and feeling connections to others on campus is so important and you're trying to find ways to impact that um i think something that i've seen with our community colleges and is is maybe more accessible is that advisor connection and that that advisor relationship um and uh training advisors on how to 
maybe that advising looks more intrusive. Maybe we're using different means and modes of connecting with students. Um, maybe we're trying to find non-traditional places, times to, to, to make those connections. Um, I feel like for me, it's probably it's going to be a lot of trial and error. And it's also probably going to be a lot of talking directly to students and understanding what it is that um, they need and getting that feedback. That's something that, you know, my assessment background, we tend to focus a lot on surveys and getting those snapshots and kind of using that quantitative data to, to really understand what's happening. But I think this is a place where that qualitative data and really um, getting in there and talking to students is probably going to be really helpful. Um, but I'm curious what you found as you've been working with community colleges that's been particularly helpful. Well, you, you bring up a really good point about it goes back to assessment use, right? Like we like quantitative data because generally what we're trying to do is summarize things across big groups. Mm -hmm. And so quantitative data makes that easy. But if I'm an advisor or coach or counselor or whatever, if I have two or three questions that I can just ask, maybe via email, maybe via text, maybe on a phone call or in a conversation to kind of gauge where students are, right? Like, hey, you know, how are you fitting in, right? Or you know, who are some people that you really have connected with on campus or, you know, things like that. That if, if the use of the, that information is I as an advisor now understand how I need to connect with or support this student socially, that assessment has done a great job. It doesn't always have to be, hey, your student scored 3.2 out of five. And that's, you know, that's, we can do that. And that's really what we, we do a great job in. But as you're right, as I'm thinking from an advising perspective, um, how do I include that in my work? Then, then it, it really changes the tools I need in order to better support and understand students. And that's where I would push back if I can against, I would say particularly community colleges um, where we've run into this that, well, our advising model isn't built to do this. Our advising model is about scheduling and because that's what students need. And our advising model is about access. Students can walk in at any time and talk to whoever's there because we don't know when students are gonna need that support. And I'll say like, I, I get that. I get what assumptions have led you to build that, but you're missing out on this social component. And, and this is everything we know. Why is it the community colleges suffer in terms of retention and, and traditional retention persistence graduation metrics? If let's say, you know, I'm, I'm pulling my last big iPad study, but, you know, one and a half time graduation rates for community colleges are at in the 30% for four year universities. It's in the 60%, right? It's not all about academic preparation. Some of it is about this social aspect. And I want to just go back to the beginning of Tinto and say, you are shirking that from your advising model. And I'm not saying that if your advising model all of a sudden included social aspects like sense of longing, that you'd go from those 30s to those 60s. But I do think you'd go from those 30s to those 40s or even the 50s. And that's what I think folks have to realize is getting back to that point of changing the underlying structure. That's the whole point of this is if your advising model isn't doesn't have an aspect where it's building that social connection that, that students feel like they belong with someone on campus you're missing a huge part of the retention picture. And I know that's a challenge. It's a fundamental challenge that is disproportionately geared towards 
community colleges and more open access institutions, but that's the fact of the matter, right? The definition of insanity is repeating the same behavior over and over again and expecting different results. If we keep rolling out this open access scheduling focused advising model, we're going to miss it. And I'll, I'll name drop here and say that's what Terry O'Banion, the founding president of the League for Innovation in the Community College, has been saying for 50 years is that your advising model can't just be about scheduling. In fact, according to Terry, scheduling is the last thing on the list of talking about with students. Mm -hmm. And he's not directly talking about social connection, but in a way he is, because if you do what Terry says in his model, you're gonna build a social connection and a, and a point of mattering between that advisor and that student. I think that's where we're falling short. And, and yeah, I'm, I might be picking on community colleges. I'd say the same message to any school. If you don't have an answer to that question, of how you're going to make that connection established between a student and another person at your institution, you're missing a huge piece of the equation towards effective retention and student success. Yeah. And, and that, you know, we're talking about advising, but I want to call back to what you were talking about as well with faculty training. And, you know, in the classroom, there's lots that we can be doing in the classroom as well. Um, and I think it's a matter of, you know, setting those expectations and 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 um, having ways of uh, evaluating how well you're doing in that in those spheres. Um, so not just training your faculty, but also following up to understand what's truly happening in those classrooms. You bring up a great point because I don't want it to seem like I'm picking on advisors or advisement. I'm talking about the, the primary mechanism by which we, we guide students and that small a advising. If you have to build another mechanism to do that, if they have an academic advisor and a coach, I don't care how it happens. I'm not saying if you're an advisor, you're doing your job wrong. I'm saying we as institutions have fallen short if our mechanism for supporting students solely focuses on class scheduling. And yeah. that's the point. So thanks for, in a group, faculty play a role. Everyone plays a role. I'll harken back to what Bill Law used to tell me, former president, St. Petersburg College. He would say, if you are not an instructional faculty, your job is to get students to class on, on time in the best possible condition to learn. And I think that's that's such a, a clear and salient way of understanding the role we all play in success. And he used to say, look, my groundskeepers know that if they see a student who's looking around, they drop what they're doing and they go ask them, where, where are you trying to get to? And I think that's that's the point I'm trying to make. And you're right. Faculty play a role. Everybody plays a role. If we don't have this sense of belonging as a key part of, of our student success strategy, we're going to miss out. And we're that's that's where our percentage points are starting to drop. So. Um, one last thing, Andrea, before we go, uh, I know you've done a, a ton of reading up on sense of belonging in the last, you know, couple weeks and months. Um, are there things you would would recommend folks check out as good resources? Uh, I mean, we're going to have a reference list on on our website for this episode, but I'm also curious if there's something where you're like, this was really helpful, this was informative, this was a different way of thinking about things. Um, I, I mean, I really like the, the, uh, France Finney and I believe it's, um, I'm so Swiderski. sorry. Good old Pete I'm sorry, Pete, if you're listening to this, <laughs> um, I, I really like their, the way that they talk about, um, uh, 
thinking about attachment to a group versus or attachment to individuals versus attachment to the institution. If you want to learn, we talked a bit about that today, but if you want to learn more about that, that's there. Um, I really like their work. Um, also, I am I have not read all of Strayhorn's book, but that is definitely on my to read list. Um, uh, just the bits that I've read so far, it seems like it's a great overview of um, a lot of the research and work that has been done in this area. Um, and so I'd say those are probably two of the, the big things um, that I would recommend. But I know you have we have some references with a few others as well. No, I, I won't add anything to that. But what I will mention is um, I think when you under, as we talk about sense of belonging and, and all of these, you know, a lot of non-cognitive factors, we've, we've touched heavily on underserved populations and the ways that these things help us better understand, support, articulate the, the, why those gaps exist, why they've been underserved or whatever, you know, why there are achievement gaps, generally speaking. And what I always encourage folks is go read a book like Educated by Tara Westover, which tells the story of a young girl who grew up in like a separatist, like doomsday prepping family in Utah, and then got into BYU, right? Um, or you know, read The Hidden Curriculum by Rachel Gable, which interviews um, first-generation students at Georgetown and Harvard. And think about sense of belonging, because we don't always use that term. But if you just think about, wow, these are students who, who overcame challenges to be successful. And you look at that through the lens of how did their social connections support or hinder their success, you start to get a better understanding of, of the saliency and the value of these factors. So I would agree completely um, to, to check out those references you mentioned. Um, again, I'll also point out that article by Adrian Liu in the Chronicle from earlier this year, just to kind of get an idea of, of what the current climate is. Um, and if you want to understand kind of how we, you know, assess it in our work and the theory that's contributed to what we're doing, um, looking at our validity report, which you can access on our Isaac.net website um, for free, by the way, um, then you can get an idea of, of kind of how we build an understanding and measurement of that because we really take a, a, a kind of a different approach and a specific approach around understanding students when they're entering institutions. So those would be, be my resources, but um, any other final takeaways before we get out of here, Andrea, this hour has flown by. It really has, it really has. And I feel like I've learned so much. Um, I, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. Um, so I'm super glad to have been here with you. I don't think I have anything else to add. Okay. Yeah. Episode two topic to be determined. To be, we'll be determined. Recording next week, but we'll figure it out between us. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining us for Sense of Belonging, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. Tune in next month for episode two course placement. Until then, have a wonderful day and an even better tomorrow. <laughs>